You came in the middle of, or actually we started a conversation last week, and so you came in the middle of this conversation, and by the way, I want to say hi to those that are in the cafe watching us. We're glad that you're with us as well. You're part of us up here as well, but in this conversation, we simply are talking about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. The name of the conversation is made to be, and we're simply saying, okay, what's God's vision, his purpose, his heart for the genders? What did he have in mind when he created man and woman? And so I was asked the question, and if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you, go online, check it out. In fact, I would strongly encourage you to do that that for this reason. Last week was foundational. Last week, we laid a foundation for the rest of the conversation. And the question I answered was, why in the world would you have this conversation, right? Why would you have this conversation in church right now? Well, obviously, it is a very charged conversation in our culture. And we said this, the reason to have the conversation is there's a lot of confusion in our culture that has led to a lot of chaos. And so we thought it'd be important to have the conversation. Not only that, we said beyond the confusion, there's stereotypes. There's stereotypes about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman that has led to a lot of distortion. And so here's what we said, and I want to make sure you hear what I'm getting ready to say. We said we're having the conversation because the church needs to find its voice and its tone. The church needs to be a safe place for people to struggle. Okay, some of you are sitting here today and you're struggling with this whole thing. And I want to say, hey, man, I'm so glad you're here. And my encouragement to you would be to continue to struggle and you're safe here and struggle into God, not away from God. Wrestle with God, don't run from God. But here's the deal. The church needs to be a safe place for people to struggle while offering clarity in the confusion and direction in the middle of the distortion. That's what we've said. And so as we navigate this whole thing, we want to navigate it with grace and truth. So we built the foundation by saying this, that in our culture, okay, in our culture, this whole idea of gender is a social construct. I'm not saying that's right. That's what I'm saying. It's a social, in other words, society gets to decide. And we kind of gave some illustrations of that, and it's created a lot of confusion because things change over time and truth is relative and all that kind of stuff. But when you look at the story of God, the heart of God, here's what we said, is that gender is rooted in creation, in the creation story, and gender is redeemed at the foot of the cross. That's important. I want you to write it down if you weren't here last week, because that is the overriding statement for the whole series. And so we just unwrapped that a little bit. We drilled back into creation and said, okay, what can we learn from the creation story about gender? And here's what we learned, that we were created on purpose by a God who had a purpose, and he has a purpose for us, and we are not the point of that purpose. That's important. Like we were created on purpose by a God who had a purpose for us. And, and, and we realize this is that we're not the point. And, and that clears up a lot of conversations because a lot of people in our culture, that we, we navigate our culture as though we're the point. And yet the idea is, is that God's the point. And so we were created on purpose by a God who had a purpose and we were made to be valued. And our value doesn't come from our competency uh, from, from the things we're able to do, capacities, but our value comes from the fact we're made in God's image. And so we're valued and we have a purpose and here's where we le- left off last week and we were made to be distinctly different by God's beautiful design. I'm gonna say that again. We were made to be distinctly different by God's beautiful design. He created us male and female. And so here's the way I would say it. In fact, this might be worth writing down that our gender, our gender is actually a gift given to us by God. 
And I would say this, and we'll tease it out, it's a gift given to us by God in large part to serve the other gender. It's a gift that's given to us by God, not so that we're the point, not so that somehow we can serve ourselves, but so that we can serve others. And so here's where we need to go today, and here's where I want to go today, that God made us different. We are valued. He has a purpose. The question is this, is our difference, you ready? I want you to stay with me. Is our difference simply biological? Obviously, we have men and women have differences biologically, but the question is, is our difference when God made this, this beautiful design and he created us different, did he just create us anatomically different and that's all? Or did he create us different because somehow our differences were made, designed to play a particular role that he wanted us to play? In other words, we're going to look at this. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And I want to look for the next several weeks at what it means to be a man. In fact, the next two weeks, I want to look at what it means to be a man. I want to look at biblical manhood, manhood from the lens of the Bible. Now, I want everybody to look here a second. All you men in the room, take a deep breath, okay? Because here's the deal. The next two weeks are going to be very relevant. We're going to talk about manhood. But I also want you to relax, because I know this, anytime a preacher that I've been associated with talks to men, he always yells at them, right? Amen? Can I get an amen on that? I'm not going to yell at you because I'm one of you. I had to yell myself, right? We're just going to kind of navigate this together. It's going to be extremely relevant. I think there's going to be some things we're going to talk about even today that are going to make you uncomfortable. They're going to stretch you. But I'm okay with that if you're okay with that. Can we do that? Okay? So it's going to be extremely relevant. All the gals look here a second. You need to be here for the next two weeks. Right? You need to come even when we're talking to men. This is extremely important for you to hear. It's extremely relevant. You single gals in the room, this conversation might be one of the most important conversations you're going to hear because you're looking for a guy to spend your life with. And we want to talk about, well, what is a biblical man? What does a biblical man look like? And so it's extremely important. You wives in the room, now I want you to encourage and pray for your men. Listen, all you women, but I don't need help preaching the sermon. Amen? Okay? So, so, so none of this elbowing and all that kind of stuff, okay? Because we're simply going to unwrap what in the world does it look like to be a man? What does biblical manhood look like? And the problem is this. When we ask the question, the guys in the room, we begin thinking to ourselves, well, that would be an easy question to answer if we knew which man we're talking about. Because when our culture says to us, act like a man, man up. There's all these stereotypes and pictures that we are given about what a man is, what it means to man up. Maybe our dads press some on us. Maybe our friends at school press. Maybe culture, media have pressed these stereotypical pictures. And so when you say, act like a man, you're like, all right, which man? And when you stop and think about it, like there's, there's all kinds of pictures. I want to just show you a couple. First and foremost, some of us may think of a lumberjack man, right? I mean, that guy looks like a man's man, right? Amen. He can have a big old axe. He can cut down his own tree, probably build something with it. Man. When we think of a man, some of you are like, well, that's what it means to be a man, right? Others of us, maybe we have a different picture, right? Yeah, well, somebody whistled out here, all right? Relax. Jeez. That's a fitness man, right? Like, what does it mean to be a man? Ooh, man. 
I can bench 400 pounds. I can, you know, that's what it means to be a man, right? And so some of you, like, that's what, and like you grew up that way, or maybe you were, you were coerced into thinking that way, maybe in the locker room or whatever it might be. Some of you, maybe that's not the case, maybe you think the athletic man, right? So you think to yourself, if you're going to be a man, you've got to be good at sports and like sports. And some of you grew up with dads who told you that. And, and some of you kind of got a little bit of a scar because you're like, I'm not really good at sports and I could care less who wins the game this afternoon. And for some of you, you're like, ugh, because somehow you grow that that's what it means to be a man. Others of you, maybe you're the outdoor man, right? Ugh, I can go hunting and fishing. I can kill a deer, skin a deer, eat a deer, right? That kind of man. Like when I think about that kind of man, I think about Pastor Aiden. Can I get amen on that? <laughs> I do. I do. I sat right here. He sat right here this morning. I said, what'd you do this week? And he said, oh, not much. He said, I killed me a squirrel on Saturday. <laughs> Like, I picture him with a squirrel wrapped around his shoulders, kind of carrying that. Look what I got, Sarah, right? It's awesome. <laughs> but some of you think about outdoor man, right? Others of you think of GQ man, right? It's like good looking, debonair, right? He's kind of, kind of romantic gal, successful in business, all that kind of. That's what you think about when you think about that's what a man is. Others of you, unfortunately, you have the redneck man, amen? <laughs> Woo! I'm going to wear camo. I'm going to smell like deer urine. I'm going to do all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's what it means to be a man. And then, unfortunately, some of you think about the NASCAR man. That's, that's nasty. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I had to pay Pastor Adam to get him to, to pose for that picture right there. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a new man in town, right? That's the video game man, right? And we don't know whether to laugh or cry about that because it's true as I stand here and you know it, right? Because some guy's like, man, I master it. And there's commercials about it, right? It's like, oh, man, I'm going to master the video game. And we're not sure what kind of man we're talking about when we're talking about manhood. In fact, we use terminology like, man, you're going to give up your man card. And I kind of researched that. What in the world is a man card? And if you can read some of it's like, well, man, if you want to keep your man card, you got to grow an epic beard, right? Some of us are out right there, right? Uh, got to kill a 12-point buck with a bow, not just a gun, with a bow, Right? survive a rattlesnake bite, right? That's like a man. And if you don't do that, you like give up your man card. And here's the deal. Here, here's the deal. Stay with me on this. Like you guys know this and we have some fun with this, but here's the deal. This whole idea that our culture gives us these stereotypes, they leave men confused. Honest to goodness. Like you gals don't know they do. They leave men confused. And there's a lot of men, they're like, I'm not sure. And, and for some guys, and maybe you're one, like I'm none of those. Like, I'm none of those. And so there are guys, and I've met with guys in my office, like, I must not be a man. Like, if that's what a man is, I must not be a man. There are other guys like, well, I'm going to pick one of those. And I'm going to decide that's what it means to be a man. Now, listen, some of you are here. And like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life proving to everybody I'm a man. And then everybody I come into contact with, I'm going to convince them that that's what it means to be a man. You ever been around one of those guys? Like around a guy that he's got grease all over his hands. And he's like, he'd rip an engine apart, put it back together three times, eyes blindfolded. He's like, that's what it means to be a man. I don't know my way around the hood of a car, right? And every time I'm around those guys, I'm like, wow, I must not be a man. Like, that's what it means to be a man. And guys get confused. Like, what does it mean to be a man? In fact, our culture is confused and men are confused. What does it mean to be a man and masculine? And that confusion for me kind of crystallized as I was watching ESPN. 
and happened to see this commercial. Masculine. Adjective. Having qualities or appearance traditionally associated with men. Especially strength and aggressiveness. Some of the synonyms are... Macho. Manly. Muscular. <laughs> Well-built. Red-blooded. Red-blooded? My goodness. Strapping. Strong. Brawny. Powerful. None of these really sound like me. <laughs> I think that definition is a little scary. It's too small for something so big. It's all about trying to get people to conform and be a certain way. I think that's what gets us in trouble is when we say that there's only one way to be a man. So many individuals, they try and fit, and it just gets to a point where it's too much. Where they are doing harm to each other and harm to themselves. You don't have to do that. You define your own masculinity. You define who you are. For me, being masculine is being honest. This is the body that I have. This is what I know. So to me, this is what a man is. For me, being masculine means being brave enough to be who I am. Being able to smile, being able to cry, being able to love and be loved. That's the man I want to be. What does it mean to me to be masculine? Um, it's more a question of what does it mean to be human? Listen, listen, that's an interesting response in light of what I'm getting ready to say. Because I would say this, you watch that commercial and you're like, I can relate with some of that, right? You're like, man, you can kind of embrace the confusion that those guys are feeling. Yet what's interesting is this, is their solution to the confusion when you get to the end of the commercial is that being a man must be just being human. There's really no distinction we're just all kind of the same. And what's interesting about that is a quote by a guy named Wayne Grudem. You maybe have never heard his name, but he wrote a really powerful book. And it says this. The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It's taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who don't know what it means to be a man and they don't know what it means to be a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. Consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons relating on the basis of abstract competencies. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, homosexuality, sexual abuse, promiscuity, more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. What's interesting is, is that God created us and designed us as men and women, then maybe he had a purpose for the design. Here's what I know. There are plenty of confused men, maybe even in this room, and I said this last week, and I heard a back from a lot of you about this, that when men are confused and don't know what it means to be a man, here's what happens. They become apathetic and passive. And apathetic and passive men hurt women. They hurt women and they hurt children. Or if they don't become apathetic and passive, they become aggressive and angry. And angry and aggressive men hurt women. And they hurt children. 
And so we begin to look at what it means to be a man. And I love the fact that when you look at the Bible, here's what's interesting, is that the Bible doesn't pigeonhole men in a stereotype. When you read the Bible, you will read about men in the Bible that are all over the place in personalities and character traits. You'll read about men who are warriors and poets. You'll read about men who are fishermen and doctors, blue collar, white collar. That God doesn't seem as interested in stereotypes that pigeonhole men. Listen close, guys. But what God seems interested in is calling men to act like men, think like men, and talk like men, because you know something. You, you know this just by observation. You know that just having male anatomy doesn't make someone a man. You're like, what are you saying, Dan? I'm saying if you went down to the nursery in our preschool, you'll find a lot of little boys run, running around with male anatomy. None of us would say there's a man. And the point is this, is that there are a lot of boys running around, unfortunately, not simply in nurseries, not simply in preschool, but boys who can shave and drive, who no one's ever called them to be a man. It's why what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is interesting to me. He says this, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. What is Paul saying? He's saying that there's something that separates the men from the boys. And if it's not these stereotypes we threw up there, which I would suggest it's not, then what is it? What separates men from boys? Well, here's what I would say. I think you can drive back in to two families that God, stay with me, two families that God has orchestrated and organized and look at what his design and desire for men is. The first family God instituted and organized and designed at creation. It's, it's the family that we know of as that family that exists in the home. It's a father and mother and children. The second family we can look at is a family that not necessarily started creation, but started, I think, at the cross and with the gospel that God is putting this family together called the family of God. And when you drill back into these families, all of a sudden you can begin to get an idea of what did God have in mind when he made distinctly different men from women? In Genesis 2, you have a specific account of what you see in Genesis 1. In verse 5, here's what it says. If you have your Bibles open, you can read with me. If not, read with me on the screen. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. And no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now, stay with me on this because you're like, man, this is the part I skip, right? A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Name of the second, Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. Name of the third is Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Everybody look here a second. God is giving us the story. This is so important. Every guy in the room, I want you to dial in now. He's given us a story that literally he drops man. He makes man and he places him in this incredible place. Sometimes when we think about the Garden of Eden, we have a sterile view of it. We read it in a children's storybook, right? And it looks sterile, like God placed him in this little garden that's in your backyard. But what he placed Adam in was this incredible, incredible place that had all this life, these animals, these plants that needed to be tended, these, these resources that needed to be mined, all of this land that needed to be discovered. And when you get the picture of Eden, the Garden of Eden, you get this idea that he dropped Adam into this unbelievable, beautiful wilderness. And he said, I am dropping you in the middle of all this place with all this life, all this possibility. And then he says this, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Work it and take care of it. Another version says it this way, to tend it and watch over it. Good News says it this way, to cultivate it and guard it. The ESV says it this way, to work it and keep it. Here's what we see right from the get-go, and and it's so important, right from the creative story, right from the get-go, we see God created man, and he gave him a purpose. He gave him a role, and that role was the responsibility to care for this place that he had dropped him into the middle of. He gave him the responsibility to somehow tend to it, to cultivate it. He even gave him the responsibility to name the animals. He gave him the responsibility to mine the resources, to tend the plants, to discover, to to rule over. What's the point? The point is this, I want you to write it down, that men are made to be responsible caretakers. Now listen, I'm gonna just answer your question that you're thinking, you mean women aren't made to be responsible? That's not what I'm saying. You mean women aren't made to take care of things? That's not what I'm saying. You're missing the point. That men primarily, when when the first man was made, he was made to care and have responsibility for what God placed him in the middle of. That literally man's role is to take care of that which God created. He said, I want you to have the responsibility to tend the plants. I want you to have the responsibility to name the animals. I want you to have the responsibility to develop this land. I want you to notice something. All the men in the room, gals, listen in. I want you to notice something. That he created man to work. Because Genesis 2 Okay, here, this is really heavy. You might want to write this down, right? Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. Can I get an amen on that? You came to church for that? And in Genesis 3 is where sin enters the human race. You're saying, why are you saying that? Because work is not a consequence of sin. Work is not a consequence of sin. Man was created to work. 
because work is the result of the fact I've been created in the image of God. A God who works, and he says, I want to give you this responsibility to cultivate life. I want you to take the responsibility to somehow make this life flourish. Guys, this is something that separates men from boys. Let me state it this way. Men want to work. Boys want to play. Men know they've been created to be industrious, to care for and cultivate things. That's part of our original design. Boys play and call it work. In fact, you don't need to answer out loud, but you ever been around a guy when he all of a sudden, after working for 40 years, just retires cold turkey? I've been around tons of guys like that. Most guys, most guys, when they get close to retirement, they're like, I can't wait, right? Just can't wait. And, and, and I've talked to tons of guys, like, and, and a lot of guys like, I don't know what to do. I need something to do. I need something to get my hands into. Why? Because we've been created to work. He's saying, women aren't supposed to, that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying, in our design, we've been created to care for. Men, listen close. Single gals in the room, write this one down. Okay, I really, I really do want you to write this one down. Men aspire to responsibility. Little boys avoid responsibility. Men embrace responsibility. Boys deflect it. Men are willing to carry the load of responsibility. Boys would rather put it on somebody else. Men are willing to do what's hard if it's right. Men are willing to do what's hard if it's right. Little boys want to take the easy way out. We we just know that from observation. Men who are responsible caretakers are willing to run into adventure. Run into adventure. Men who are willing to take responsibility will see chaos and want to bring order to it. Boys come into order and create chaos. Men look to embrace the opportunity to selflessly care for others. Boys love it when people care for them and they don't care what it costs. Here's the point. I want you to hear me say this, and I'm going to read some things that are startling to me. Culturally speaking, there is a lot of chaos because in large part, and I'm not, but men have avoided their responsibility, abdicated their responsibility. And where men embrace their responsibility, God created this man to do this, life flourishes. When men avoid responsibility, life deteriorates. In case you don't believe me, which I think you do, but let me read some stats that aren't from a Christian resource. Their U.S. Census Bureau says this. There's a crisis in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.7 million children, more than one in four, live without a father in the home. Consequently, there is a father factor in nearly all of the societal ills facing America today. Research shows that when a child is raised and there's no man present, he or she is affected in the following ways. Four times greater risk of poverty, seven times more likely to become pregnant if it's a gal as a teen, more likely to have behavior problems. This is the U.S. Census Bureau. This is not preacher talk. 
more likely to face abuse and neglect, two times greater risk of, uh, of infant mortality, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit a crime, two times more likely to drop out of high school. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, U.S. Department of Health and Census says, five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. That's according to the Center for Disease Control. Justice in Behavior magazine says this, 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts, according to National Principals Association report, come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. None of those are Christian resources. It's not preacher talk. The, the point is this, right from the beginning, we can see that when men abdicate, avoid, skirt responsibility, life doesn't flourish. That men, right from the get-go, were given the responsibility to take care of where God placed them. And when men are responsible caretakers, things flourish. When men avoid or skirt their responsibility, things begin to deteriorate. All of a sudden, the homes begin to erode. Culture begins to compromise. The church begins to limp. The question for us guys is, how is what we've been given to take care of doing? How's it doing? For those of you married men in the room, can I ask you this? If, if, if you were to look at your marriage and you are given the opportunity to be a responsible caretaker, how is your marriage doing? Here's the illustration. I tell tons of guys this. On the day that I was married, I, I used this just this week with several guys. If you could picture that God gave me a young, beautiful rose. I have a choice. Her name was Jennifer. And picture that rose. I have a choice. Either I could care for that rose, I could water it and feed it and care for it and nurture it and cultivate it so that that rose blossomed and grew and became beautiful. Or I could neglect it. I could abuse it. I could just assume that it could take care of itself. And the results would be evident. God placed us in the middle of our marriage, and I believe that his role is that we be responsible caretakers. How about fathers in the room? How's your home? Like, how, how, how is your home doing? Been placed in the middle of your home with these children. And, and the question becomes, how is what I've been given responsibility to take care of doing? Well, that's what she does. Right? That's what she does. And when I look at this, I'm like, God, when he created man, created him to take responsibility to take care of. Some of you in the room, you're single guys, you're like, man, I'm off the hook. I ain't got no wife to take care of and no kids to take care of, baloney. My question to single guys in the room, do you aspire? Do you aspire to embrace responsibility? To care for what you have to care for? My advice to single gals who are looking for single guys is as the guy that you're with, does he embrace or avoid responsibility? He can't keep a job. He won't work. See what I'm saying? 
See, when I read this creative story, it's like God created man, and this was, this was somehow built into man. Now, Genesis 2 goes on. Look what it says. It says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. We're going to talk about this in two weeks. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. This is, this is an awesome picture. Stay with me. Some of you have read this so much, it's too familiar. So while he's sleeping, so Adam's out for a nap, right? It's like gone, sleeping, right? While Adam is sleeping, God takes one of the man's ribs, closes up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And then look at this next part. And he brought her to the man. God, everybody look here saying, this is so fascinating to me. Like Adam goes to sleep, takes this long nap, and he wakes up to a wedding. Yeah, I just did a wedding on Friday, outside, a wedding on Friday, and here's the deal. When I do weddings, most of the time, here's what happens. Traditionally, the gal, what she wants is for her daddy to walk her down the aisle. You ever seen a wedding like that, right? Give away the bride. You ever seen it like that? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty awesome. And so what the father does is he places her arm in the arm of the groom. When I say, who gives? And she says, her mother and I, boom, gives that over to, right? That's what happens. Here's what's going on. Adam wakes up. He's like, man, that was a good night of sleep. God's been busy, right? And he sees God walking his daughter down the aisle because it says he brought her to him. That's fascinating. And when he brings her to him, then Adam says this. He says, she's now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman for she'd been taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Man, what a picture. God walks his daughter down and says, I'm giving my daughter. I created her specifically, specially. And he says, now, now this is, Adam, you're going to leave mom. You're, you're going you're to become one flesh. You have this responsibility to take care of in a unique way. In fact, when you tease this out through Scripture, you begin to get the heart of God. And what did he expect of Adam? What does he expect of men? And you see this phrase found in the book of Ephesians. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Same phrase. Be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. But what is around that phrase is God's heart for man. And here's what it says. Stay with me. Some of you might choke on what it's going to say, but we're going we're to make sense of it. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Everybody take a deep breath, okay? Because some of you gals are like, say what? I love it when gals are in my office are like, I don't like that, right? Because here's the deal. You've never heard it talked about the way I think God intended us to talk about it. And we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, but for the sake of today, can I just say this? He said, I want you to do that because if your husband, if your husband is pursuing being a man the way I intend it, then he is going to love you just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then he goes on, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives. 
as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Just as Christ the church, we are members of his body. And there's our phrase. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Guys, here's what he's saying. God is simply saying, husbands, I want you to lead the same way Jesus leads. I want you to lead sacrificially, to love selflessly. In fact, this is what he'd say. He'd say, this separates men from boys. Men are made to be sacrificial leaders. Men are made to be sacrificial leaders. Men give, boys take. Men think of others, boys think of themselves. Men selflessly serve at whatever expense to them. Boys willingly take at whatever expense to others. Men will lay down their life for others. Boys will hide behind others. Men protect. Boys hurt. In fact, I'm going to show you a passage from 1 Peter that gets totally just blown up and people cause all kinds of craziness about it. But it's, I think it's simple. We've made it too hard. It's like husbands in the same way be considerate. In other words, know your wives. That's what he's saying, as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And that's usually like, say what? You know? It's like, what's Peter saying there, right? Like, he's saying we're not as good, not as smart. Not, he's not saying any of that. He's not saying that. You know what he's saying? He's saying like, Dan, if you took 100 guys and lined them up here and 100 gals and you had them arm wrestle, probably ah, 90-10. I don't know. Like there's probably 10 of you gals that could beat all of us. I don't know, right? But the majority, I don't, you know, meet me afterwards. But, but, but that's all he's saying. He's saying, hey, listen, respect them as the weaker part and as heirs equal with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's just simply saying, boys, but boys will hurt, men protect. That's all he's saying. It reminds me, I've, I've been listening to um, something, Matt Chandler, a guy, some of you recognize the name. But he was referencing a guy named Roy Stinson who's raising his family. He's got tons of kids, and, and, and he's got boys. And he taught his boys a little saying from early on. This is his saying. You know, whether you agree with it or like it or not, this is what he taught them. And I, I, I actually like it. He taught his boys from little on. He said, the boy goes down, the girl goes free. The boy goes down, the girl goes free. And he used to make them repeat it to him. Repeat it to me. The boy goes down, the girl goes free. The boy goes down, and they're like, oh, I got it, that boy goes down, you know. And one day he's sitting at, looking out his window, his home, and he sees this, one of his sons riding his, his wagon down a hill. It's like, and he's just flying. He's like, oh, it's going to end bad, right? And uh, as he's watching, he's like, oh, no. Because he sees a little girl come out with her tricycle, and the two of them are going to meet, man. It's going to be a collision. And he stands up from his chair, and he begins to watch, and he's like, what? What's going to happen? And all of a sudden, he washed his little boy with that handle, you know, those wagons like that, and that little boy starts doing this. He starts rocking that wagon until all of a sudden that wagon whew, whew, tumbles, and that kid goes head over heels, and he ends up in a ditch, and Roy and his wife ran out because they're like, man, that boy, I hope he's going to be okay. And they ran out, and the boy's crying, and he's bleeding, and he's on. they've got to determine, he's got to take him to the hospital, and they get him calmed down, and the little boy looked up at his dad, and he said, Daddy, he said, the boy goes down, the girl goes free. You see, here's the deal. That's, 
that's like the seeds of manhood. Like that's sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice for the sake of. It doesn't always look that dramatic, right? That sounds kind of like a Hollywood ending. It's not always that romantic and whatever, right? I mean, sometimes it's just like whatever. I mean, I remember Jennifer and I were early married, right? We lived in, some of you recognize this, Billy Sunday. We lived in this famous preacher's top floor of his house because it was the only place we could afford. And it was this long hallway apartment. And I, back then, I'm going to age myself. I, I carried a walkie-talkie. I worked on this maintenance crew, and they're like, Dan, Dan, you got to get home right away. I'm like, oh, man, I wonder what's going on. You know, we're early married. I run home, get home, run in the house, and I can hear my wife. She's upstairs yelling. I'm like, where are you at? She said, I'm in the bathroom. I'm like, I wonder what's going on. You know, I'm like, what's wrong? She said, there's a bat in the house. <laughs> Raise your hand if you hate bats. Just let me see. The rest of you lying, right? I'm just saying, I hate bats. So I shut the door and said, good luck. No, I didn't say, I didn't say that. No, no, no. She said, I'm afraid. I didn't say it, but I thought, I'm afraid too, right? I guess things are crazy. Things flying. I mean, we had a long hallway. There's nowhere to duck. And then so I grab a tennis racket, right? And I'm thinking to myself, man, what do I do? I've never fought a bat before, right? She said, stay in there, sweetheart. I got it, right? And I'm running up and down that hallway, swinging everything, just laughing at me. All of a sudden, I get in the kitchen, shoo, boom, hit a bunch of glasses, crash all over the floor. What's that? Nothing. I got it, you know? Stay in there. It's not safe. And I took swipes at that swung, broke glasses and plates, everything's going. She's in there. What's that? I said, don't worry, I got it. Finally, I got the bat. I said, come on out, sweetheart. She came out looked like World War III had happened in our apartment, right? But in the middle of the broken glass was the bat, right? You see, here's the deal. Sometimes it doesn't always look great. And the truth is, I was afraid too, right? I don't like bats. But when I look at this, I think to myself, what a picture. That somehow God's placed it in us as men. And he said, I want you to sacrificially lead. I want you to selflessly love. Husbands, listen to me. When you sacrificially love your wife, you're leading. Well, I don't like doing that. That's not my preference. That's not the way I communicate love. When you sacrificially love your wife, you lead. Dads, when you sacrificially love your children, you lead. When they watch you sacrificially love them, you lead them. And you begin to gain influence in their life. Men who sacrificially lead, listen close, will treat women with respect. Men who sacrificially lead will make a commitment. Some of you single gals in here with a guy and he will not make a commitment to you. He likes playing house, but he won't make a commitment. I'm not picking, and you don't even have to agree with me. I'm saying this, God placed it in us to sacrificially lead. Men who sacrificially lead won't pressure women to do things they don't want to do. Men who sacrificially lead won't simply act on impulse, they will act out of self-control. Let me show you what Paul told Titus. 
Encourage the young men to be, say it out loud, self-controlled. We're going to talk about this next week. Got to come back. Men, we've, we, we've learned to measure manhood a certain way our culture's taught us. And a lot of ways it's taught us is to measure it. We live on our impulses. We live on our impulses. How many people can we beat up, right? How many women have you slept with? How many whatever? We live on... Man, that's what it means, right? And what Paul seems to be telling this young Titus is, no, 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 no. Men sacrificially lead... And their strength is seen even in self-control. Doesn't end there. There's one more thing. One more thing. And I want to race here. We've got to go here. Okay? So I'll apologize right up front about the clock. Don't turn and look. If you don't care, I don't care. Okay? But give me five, seven minutes to tease this out. Because Genesis 2 says this. Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Everybody look here a second. I've got to be quick about this. God gives the man the command. Eve's not even around. And with that command comes the understanding that part of his responsibility is, I want you to make sure this command makes it down to those that I create. I want you to make sure that what I have just commanded, that this, this idea that I have just conveyed to you, download it with your wife. Well, if you know the story, the story goes on, and the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, did God really say? By the way, that's the lie of Satan today. Does God really mean what he says? Did God really you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Look at what happens. The woman said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, look at this, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and then you must not touch it. Which, by the way, that's not what God said. Or you'll die. Serpent said, you're not going to die. Satan's still saying that today. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. By the way, that's the lie of Satan today. God doesn't really want what's best for you. God doesn't know what's best for you. God doesn't care about you. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. You all know that part of the story. The next sentence is mind-blowing. She also gave some to her husband... Where'd she find him? She had to walk across the garden like, hey, man, you wouldn't believe this conversation I just had? Who was with her? And he ate it. Guys, the dude was standing there. Adam, the guy who originally received the word from God, Adam, the guy who literally God walked his daughter down, said, here is your wife, is standing there when this conversation is going on. Doesn't say anything, doesn't step up and do anything, doesn't say, hey, that's not really what he said. Here's really what he said. That's not what, he just stands there and then he participates. So look what happened. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the, say it out loud, man. Now, where are you? Anybody in the room ever hid from your parents when you did something wrong? 
You ever done that? You're like, man, if I just stay right here, maybe I can stay here till I'm 35, right? <laughs> maybe it'll be gone. Can you imagine hiding from God? And God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he's looking for the man. I thought the woman, wasn't it the... In fact, Adam was kind of hoping that. He said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Like, Adam kind of gives himself away. And the man said, well, well that, that, that there woman. You see how all of a sudden things change? The woman that God brought to him? That, that there woman you put here with me. I was doing just fine, right? Well, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Guys, I, I, I want you to get something. It's interesting that God gave the man the responsibility to download this, and then he held him accountable, and he came looking for the man. What's the point? I want, you, I want every guy in the room, if you've got a pen, I want you to write it down. Men are made to be spiritual guardians. Men are made to be spiritual guardians. This is what separates the men from the boys. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, I want you to see a passage. And I want every guy, when I get to the words in capital, to read it out loud with me. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Ready, men? Act like men. Be strong. In the original Greek, it literally, that word there is act like men. Act like men. What does that mean? Act like which man? He's saying act like men who are watchful guardians. That word watchful literally is a word that would have been somebody who stood on the wall and watched to make sure no threat came in and to make sure only things that brought life passed through that way. That's what he's saying. He's saying men are watching. Men are standing firm in the faith. Are they outdoorsmen? Maybe. Do they like to sing? Maybe. Are they poets? Maybe. Are they tall? Maybe. Are they short? Maybe. Like, that's not the point. What they are, no matter what they are, they're guardians. Men who are spiritual guardians in their marriage. Men who are standing watch. Men who are staying up to make sure nothing threatening is coming in and only what's going to bring life is allowed. Guys, I'll, t- I'll tell you something that helps me as a guy. I'm just going to tell you. If it doesn't help you, just forget I said it. I don't have any verse for this, just so you know that. But I picture myself standing with Jennifer someday before God and him asking me this question. Hey, Dan. Is she any more in love with me as a result of being married to you? You see, when I think about what it means to be a spiritual guardian, I think I want to stand guard over my marriage. I think it means standing guard over my family. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. How do fathers exasperate their children? by not bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He said, dads, I want, like, should, should moms not do that? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, dads, I want you to be spiritual guardians. I want you to stand watch. I want you to watch what's coming in that might be threatening. You're the one who ought to know what they're listening to, what they're looking at, who their friends are, where they're going. Really? Because she kind of, that's kind of what she does, right? No. That's what a man does. 
She can do it. I'm not saying she can't. I'm just saying men are involved in being spiritual guardians and guarding the threat of their home. She's better at it. Don't matter. Don't matter. That men are spiritual guardians and they are inviting in those things that are going to cause their home to flourish. Dad's in the room. I want to tell you this and then then I really do got to be done. Studies, I have tons of studies I could point you to. As goes the father, so goes the children, spiritually speaking. I know moms have this great impact. I'm not saying that. Studies show as go the father, so so goes the home. And men are called to be the spiritual guardians. We're called to be the spiritual guardians. I would say it this way, guys. Okay, and I want to say this with love. Okay, I really do, but I want you to hear me. It, your child's well-being spiritually is not my responsibility. It's not Greg, Pastor Greg's, Joel's, Miss Sherry's. We love partnering with you. But as men in this room, you are the spiritual guardian of your home. Responsible caretakers, sacrificial leaders, Spiritual guardians. Now look here. You can make sure they know that I'm just going a little over. We're not going to let them in, okay? We do that? Everybody look here, okay? This is so heavy on my heart. We're going to make that work. We're going to make that work. Everybody look here. You guys are sitting in here and I'm watching you for the last 40 minutes. And some of you are like, because you're like, oh my gosh. For some of you, I see a freedom because you're like, I'm not any of those stereotypes, but I can be that kind of man. Right? I can be that kind of man. Others of you are like, oh my gosh. The guilt, the shame, right? The regret. You're like, oh, how do we do that? What do we do, Dan? We just got like, oh, I'm going to be that kind of man, right? I'm going to act a man. What do I do? I go out and try to pick a stereotype and listen, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you this and then we're done. The answer is not in somehow racing towards a stereotype. The answer is in fixing your eyes on a savior. Listen, Jesus is the only man who ever perfectly exemplified this. And you know what he did? He came and did all the work that was necessary so that you could have a relationship with God. He took the responsibility to bear on his shoulders what was mine to bear. And his invitation to us men is this, trust me and follow me. Follow me into this adventure. Follow me into this adventure of what it means to be a man who takes responsibility and cares for what I've given you to care for. Follow me, the one who sacrificed myself for you, into what it means to be a sacrificial leader, giving your life for the sake of others. Follow me. Follow me as you become the guardian for the most important part of your life and heart and your families and your marriages. So God, here we are. Band of brothers. 
band of brothers. And some of us in here have never trusted Jesus as Savior. And if that's you right now, I beg of you in your seat just to cry out to God and say, I know I'm a sinner and I believe you love me and that Jesus died for me. And today I want to say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Others of you, you listen to this and you're like, oh, man. There's so many places where I feel like I fall short. And the invitation this morning to you is simply this. Jesus is saying, follow me. Don't go out of here and buck up and grit up and man up and follow me. The man who loves you and gave my life for you, follow me. Some of you, maybe the application is simply to to begin taking responsibility and quit avoiding it. Begin running into adventure and quit avoiding it. For others of you, maybe it's to begin to engage with your wife in a sacrificial way that loves her, to begin to engage with your children in a way that is sacrificial. For others of you, maybe it's simply you saying, I need to start to engage in what is coming in and going out and happening in my home, in my marriage, and if I'm a single guy, in my heart. For you gals in the room, maybe the application is saying, God, I'm done lowering the standard. I'm done dating boys who shave and drive. And I want to trust you for the man who can walk with me into life and adventure together in a way where life flourishes. And for you wives in the room, this is, if, 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 if I ever found out that this was ammunition for you, I would be so disappointed in my spirit as a pastor because all this is is opportunity for you to pray for your man that he would run into what God created him for. And for those of you in the room, you're like, my man left. My man's gone. All I know to say to you is this, where the ideal is absence, God's grace abounds. And you're part of this family. You're part of this family. And some of you are raising sons with the absence of a father. And I am asking you, I I admire you. You're some of my heroes. I'm asking you to somehow allow those boys to know men, to know men who will walk with them into the adventure of manhood. Help us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.